welcome to RZ Weekly. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Ravanit Mali Bravsky. Mali Bravsky is a senior faculty member at Michalalek Mevaseret Yerushalayim and maintains a clinical social work practice in Gush Etzion. Hello, Mali. Hello. Hi. Okay, we're Johnny Solomon. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is a teacher at Machon Ma'ayan, Midrash Torah Chesed, and a writer and editor of Jewish content for numerous organizations around the world. Hello, Rabbi Johnny. Hi, Ruben. How are you? Okay, and I'm Ruben Smelter, director of OTS Amiel Bakila, and the rabbinic liaison for Irgun Rabbinate Soar. We're going to start, obviously, not obviously, we're going to start on a very somber, solemn um, note. It would be, we feel, inappropriate to mark, we're here on Erev Purim, uh, not to mark the, the tragic murders uh, yesterday of a chayal. And I specifically want to focus on 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 uh, on the, the person who was also killed during the same pigua, the same attack, a person named Achiyad Ettinger, who I did not know personally. But what what I was just so taken by, by you know, in Israel, you meet these people after they're no longer with us that are just so powerfully uh, important people and incredible people. And this man, he was not only the father of 12, uh, and uh, he had lived in Eli, but I, le- I learned on the radio today that he was, he, he had lived in the South Drum Tel Aviv, in the, one of these uh, very tough neighborhoods in South of Tel Aviv until three years ago, when for family reasons, they decided they had to move to Eli. And then, uh, and, and then recently he decided, I have to start a yeshiva in South Tel Aviv in order to to create a, in order to create a framework for the re- resurgence and the reinvigoration of the neighborhood. And that's the same person that when there was a pigua, he wasn't in the pigua, he turned around and he, he, he returned and he fired his gun and he was, tragically, he was tragically killed by the terrorist. And I just find myself on the one hand, uh, yesterday, every, I think the whole country was walking around in a funk because uh, that's what happens when these things happen. And just in awe of, of this man's incredible Devotion to Klal Yisrael and bravery, and and you just meet these people that are just unbelievable people. And I think it would be inappropriate for us to have a to have a podcast and not mention not mention uh, Rabbi Ettinger and not to not to note his passing and the loss for Klal Yisrael, even though he's a person I never met. If you all wanted to add anything, I would I would I would appreciate that. Um, we. Of course, we're shocked to hear about this pikua, and uh, saddened still to hear about the lo- loss of one life, and then, as we heard, uh, a further yesterday. It was I had a strange uh, experience, as we know. Just last Friday, there was this uh, extraordinary uh, tragedy: murder of, of forty-nine Muslims praying in a mosque in New Zealand, and I felt a need and a responsibility to acknowledge that, reflect on that. Uh, on social media, and uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Nonetheless, when these things happened, I waited. Uh, I didn't straight away um, acknowledge it in public. Obviously, in my heart, there was tremendous pain. And I wondered to myself why. And I answered really quite simply, I need to know the person's name. You see, when things happen far away from here, we feel the anguish. We acknowledge the the uh, uh, the the murders that have happened and we stand up and we say this is both wrong, unjust and and the full weight of the law should go on this individual which I don't know if you saw today the Prime Minister of New Zealand made it very clear she's never going to say his name, she doesn't want to give him that level of publicity but here in Israel though bad things happen unfortunately on a far too regular basis there is there is almost a double mourning, you hear about the event and it hurts you but then you lean forward, you say, I want to know who that person is. I may not know them, but I know I'm going to know somebody who does. And I want to find out about their lives. And I also watched a video um, uh, about the Rav and, and what he did in, in South Tel Aviv. And it really moved me. And there was this real sense of this may not be a relative, but boy, was he family. And so too with his fellow soldier. And, and, and it hurts every Jew around the world. But knowing their names and acknowledging their stories and, and feeling the pain is, is something that many people do. Many people went to Levayot not knowing the individual's concern, but they felt that sense of connection. So I totally connect with the words that you said. Yeah. I, I'd want to add, actually, Rav Johnny, so it, I, I just have to mention, you said we know someone who knows someone. There's a woman who lives in our community. Her name is Rachel uh, Tuito. 
and Rachel Tuito was the wife of Yosef Tuito. Yosef Tuito, you can look it up, he was killed in an attack in Itamar in 2002. He was the father of five children. He was the head of the security squad. And he, when he was, he was killed in this attack in Itamar when he was attempting to rescue civilians in, in, you know, who, were, who were in danger in the attack. This woman, Rachel Tuito, she's the brother of Rabbi Ettinger. Her, 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 she's a sister of Rabbi Ettinger. So now she's sitting Shiva for her brother, you know, 12, whatever, 15 years after she said Shiva for, for her husband. And it's, it's very hard to ponder, you know, how much can a person take? And so you say, we all, like, it's hard. To, I, I always try to convey to my friends and the people that I know who, who are not living here, you know, just how, how personal it is, how it's on your, you know, even though we're all in social media, it's very different when you see it on a Facebook post or your shul is arranging, you know, a bus, the community is arranging a bus because it's your neighbor. Or, you know, and you see it in your, your local, in your circles, in your WhatsApp circles. And it, it hits home that much more. It's not something that's in your, I think we all have a certain like circles of awareness. I have awareness of the news. I have awareness of like international. I'm in pain because of the, because of that terrible attack in New Zealand. And I'm in pain because, of, you know, but when, when it hits in your, in your, in your neighborhood or in your community, you know, it, it's just, it, it hits you in a different kind of way. And, uh, and uh, that's something that it's very difficult to convey to people who, are, who don't have that and don't experience it. Thank God. We shouldn't know such things. Yeah, I agree. And I agree with it, uh, what both of you just said. Uh, I, I think it is important to identify with uh, international tragedies as well. All tragedy, all pain, all, all, all loss of life and death and self-order. Um, I do also think that, that living here, we, we do experience these, these terrorist attacks, these piguim, in a very, very visceral and personal way. And I had the same experiences as Ravjani. I was also waiting, sort of subconsciously, not even realizing it, but waiting to know information so that I could connect on a personal level. Um, for me, first of all, when you know, when you hear a 19-year-old chayal has been killed, and those of us who have children of that age, it resonates. But you know, then when 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 you see a video of this young man playing an instrument, um, this young instrument mm -hmm. apparently was one of the only ones who knew how to play this this. I mean, kind of what it is, it's a combination of a mandolin and a guitar. Um, you see this young boy, and then um, with Rev Ettinger, you know, you, you read, you know, father of 12, but then when you see a post that lists their names, one after the other with their ages, uh, ranging from, I think, you know, the, the early 20s down to, I think there's a there's a year old child, if I'm not mistaken. There's a baby, yeah, one of them is a baby. Yeah. And that, you know, 12, 12 children are, are, are now tearing Korea, or, you know, whatever to whatever degree, obviously, but the loss of their father, um, it does hit you it, 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 in a very, very real way. Um, and and I, I agree with you that it's important to stop and 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 give give it give it that space and that and that place of mourning. I agree with that very much. Okay, thank you very much. We're gonna we're gonna switch tracks because that's what we do you know <laughs> that's what we do it's uh, it's going to be perm soon and we're going to turn it to that in a second but before we do we have mailbag and we need a mailbag um i think we need a mailbag like sound effect doing like your ring or something like that so we have a mailbag from last week's discussion i'm going to preface it molly wants to respond to this mailbag because she wants to clarify uh so, some of the things that she said we're going to preface it by saying we're not going to talk about this this topic in great depth it's sort of obviously an important topic that we'll come back to in future weeks but we're going to preface it by saying we'd like to give Molly the, the chance to respond, but then we're going to move on to our, I guess, main topic. Molly, please. Okay, so um, it was actually uh, the person who sent them this particular um, response asked to remain anonymous for this one, so I will respect that. And it was actually quite an interesting response with a lot of points to unpack, and I agree, I think we should come back to it, but there were a few things that he said that related to me particularly um, that I wanted to respond to especially because I think there was misunderstanding about what I said, and it was important for me to clarify. So I'm just going to read. This is a paraphrase because it was sent um, not as an email. It was, spent, it was sent as a voice note. So this is a paraphrase, but it's more or less the language. So first, he thanked us for a great series, which, which as always, we say we very much appreciate people who listen and follow, um, and we appreciate feedback. And this is, this is the part that, that I would like to respond to. So, so regarding the issue of halachic change, this vote was said. This leads me to the following comment. First of all, it's like the famous statement of the Rav, which says that Judaism demands submission. 
Submission is a basic feature of religious life and even more so Judaism. Um, and the implication was that I, well, let me finish reading and then I'll, I'll talk about this. Can Molly imagine a clash between these two worlds, the world of Judaism and the world of outside culture, in which she would go and even reflexively choose the side of Judaism <coughs> as the culture and philosophy around me are just not acceptable because that's not what it sounds like. Okay, so just to clarify what, what it sounds like, what this, what this listener thought I had said was that, um, I, I, that I was only willing to accept halachic change when it incorporated the outside values that I identified with into Judaism. But if there was a clash in which Judaism said no, would I not be willing to submit? And it didn't sound like I would be willing to submit. And then I don't. I have to tell you, I don't agree with that. I didn't think it sounded like that to me. But I okay, mean, if somebody okay, heard it that, it doesn't matter. I, I, it's it's less about. I, I'm not interested. I, I actually agreed very much with a lot of what this person said. I think that we have a lot in common, which is really what I wanted to clarify because I was concerned that I had come across and my messages weren't clear. So my 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 point here is not to disagree. My point is just to clarify my own positions because I, if, if I wasn't clear, then I want to be clear. Okay. And the second part was. Um, questioning, you know, because we talked about gender roles, could it be that Chazal really meant that some of the differences between men and women are inherent? And could it be that where Mali is going leads us to question all of the halakhic differences between men and women? Um, right? The implication being that I wholeheartedly embrace the movement that, you know, the modern movement, and I, and I'm, and I believe that the way Chazal viewed it uh, is outmoded and outdated and has no, you know, that that's not where my, you know, kinds of affiliations lie. So I wanted to say, first of all, on this idea of sacrifice, um, to me, that is one of the fundamental um, tenets of the religious experience. I, I, I so much identify with that idea. Um, and, and, and as this person said, this is, this is an idea that comes very much from Rosaloveitchik, the idea of submission, the idea of catharsis, the idea of sacrifice. If you're not willing to submit yourself to God, if you're not willing to take a no when you get a no, then to me, then, then that's not fully a religious experience. You may be engaging in all types of um, um, personal growth, or even I would, I could perhaps even use the word spiritual elevating experiences, but if you're not willing to submit before God, then that is, to me, that is, that there is something profoundly lacking in, in the religious um, havai, the religious experience that you're, that you're, that, that you're, that you're engaging in. So to me, Sacrifice is absolutely fundamental, and therefore I would say that that absolutely I, that there are places where, it's, particularly in women's issues, right? The question was, well, could I take a no? Could I hear a no? The answer is absolutely yes. There are there are many um, issues surround, hal- surrounding women in halacha where I don't where there are, I have peers at, or there are communities that do things in in the realm of women in Judaism that I will not do. Um, that I will say, no, that is not for me. Or I will take and I will accept a no, either because I think that there's a halachic red line, and I, I will say I will not cross that halachic red line, and sometimes even for sociological reasons where I don't think that the community is at a place where I think that's appropriate. So that idea of submission and hearing a no, I think is very, very important to me and very, very central to my idea of um, what it means to be religious Jew. Absolutely, I think it's important to sometimes, um, to sometimes, engage in that act of recoil, catharsis, uh, and submission. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, I think there was a somewhat of con- a confusion about how I review, um, you know, I had mentioned Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat and, and how I view the halachic process. And I wanted to very briefly touch upon that. And again, I think hopefully there'll be room for us to discuss this more because it's obviously complex, but I'm going to see if I can just in, in, in a few broad strokes, and again, I know that this is perhaps too broad, but I think it's important to clarify how I view the interplay between, uh, meaning how I, what, how I view essentially the human role in the halachic process and, and um, are there eternal messages in the halachic process? Like, how, how do you relate to that whole issue? So here again, I, re- I, I, I really, I, I have to ask you, can you do this in five, in two yes, minutes? Yes, I this promise you, I've been thinking about it all day. How am I going to do this okay, okay. in two minutes? You can cut me off if it's going, I promise. If it's too long, say I'm not going to cut you off. I'm really not going to cut you off. But it's okay. like, yeah, this is a Let's topic that it. I think about a lot. I okay. have conversations with people right. all the time. I want so to talk about this. I'm sure Johnny has things to add. Right. But we should like, my talk My fear about is that, that, it's gonna, uh, that there's obviously going to be a lot more to say. And, I don't, and, I, and it could be that I'm not going to be clear because I'm going to be too broad. But I will be able to say it in a short amount of time. You'll tell me whether my ideas came across clearly. 
Again, I'm going to rely on Rav Soloveitchik's formulation here in Halachic Man, where he talks about his view, or let's, let's be fair and say Halachic Man's view of um, what the Halachic system is. And essentially, the way he describes it is, um, well, let's start with this. He talks about the, the concept that we have um, in the Gemara, this, you have this phrase over and over. Ben Sawar there, there never was such a thing as a Ben Sawar so why should we learn it? The concept of a city of full of idolatry, which you have to destroy. never existed, so why should we learn it? So what does that mean? So Rav Soloveitchik says, the halacha is essentially the blueprint that God is giving us for how to create an ideal society in the real world. And it exists on an ideal level. Okay, and, the, and there are ideal and timeless values embedded within the halachic system. Now, what happens? Human beings, given the modes of halachic interaction, right, whatever those are, whether it's Yud Gimel Midot or however you want to describe Torah Sheba Al Peh, now have to take their human abilities and attempt to, to kind of figure out what that halachic ideal system is. That's what Torah Sheba'al Peh is, attempting to uncover what the divine will is for this world. So what does that mean? First of all, the Lo Nivra and Rosh Vakabel Schar thing, right, is never going to happen, but still learn, reflects the reality that there's an ideal, but that human beings, being human, are always going to, there's, sometimes it's not possible to, to have the ideal in the real world, right? Ben Soromor, for example. Ideally, if you have a person that you know is going to end up being a person who is just going to bring destruction to the world, ideally you should be, we should take that person out of the world. But human beings can't do that. That's not a human possibility. For all kinds of right, limitations, ethical limitations, and, and, and time with limitations, for a million reasons, human beings can't allow themselves the luxury of doing that. But they should know on some level that there is some type of truth there, but that in reality we can't get to that truth. Right, so the human experience is limited by the human experience, but it's attempting to interact with some type of ideal divine vision that the halacha is trying to represent. Okay, so that's how I view the halachic enterprise. So humans are limited, so they're not always going to get it right. Not just because they're limited, because they're limited in all kinds of ways. Right. So what does that mean? That means that when I look at halacha, I'm able to have appreciation for and understanding for the ways in which sometimes human beings. Um, because they are human, are going to end up with varying approaches, different machlokot, whatever it is, right? Different human responses. Some of them may, yes, be sociologically affected, right? That's a whole different conversation, but I will include that in the package. But what's important to, for me to say at this point, in terms of our larger conversation, <coughs> is that, yes, I do believe that the halacha, embedded in the halacha, are timeless values, and that what we're trying to do is uncover those timeless, timeless values. So when it comes to gender, absolutely, I believe that. I do believe in gender differences. I do believe that what the halacha has to tell us about the interactions between men, <coughs> we should be looking at the overall corpus of the halacha, the thrust of the halacha to guide us in how we think about, uh, about the, uh, the interaction between the sexes. Um, so absolutely, I do think that that's true. I don't think that, that whatever the other implication was, um, and I'll just make one final point, which is, Again, and I feel I feel like I keep referring to my students, but I guess that's my frame of reference. You know, for all these years when my students come to me and say, why is halacha so slow? Even on the most simple things like women learning Gemara, right? Why is it taking so many years? So I'll say, listen, the halachic system is slow, but that's a good thing. It's slow because it's careful and because it's, it's cautious and it works, right? It grinds exceedingly, you know, it, it grinds slowly, but it gr grinds exceedingly small. It works, it's preserved Judaism. For 2,000 years, the system is successful. Okay, so I will stop here, but I will just, my, my final point is, when it comes to women's issues, now I'm not just saying, okay, we have to have patience because halacha is good. I think, let's, I, I agree. I think we should not go too quickly on, on feminist issues. I think the world is going too fast, and I am appreciative of halacha for putting on the brake, so to speak, and helping us find a way to navigate this, this complex dynamic between um, you know, what the halachic system says and what our sensibilities are. I will end there. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. Um, I, Johnny, I'll give you, I, this is not our topic. I mean, we were going to talk about it, but I do want to, I, I want you to respond ever so briefly. If you can. Okay, I didn't, 
I didn't realize I was going to. So firstly, thank you, Mali. That's my first response. Secondly, is actually thank you for those who've sent feedback to our uh, recordings because we learn a lot from the ideas you raise and uh, it makes us take a second look at perhaps the ideas that we share. Uh, specifically in response to what Mali said, I think there are two issues at play. One is uh, development in halakha and one is halakha's response to developments in the wider world um, and how you distinguish between the two obviously is a very delicate issue. Um, Halakha naturally has, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say room for development. Halakha adapts to a changing world, uh, and as the world changes rapidly, we have seen some uh, stark shifts in certain behaviors amongst certain communities about particular things. Uh, for some, that's normal. For some, this is cause for concern. Um, and I think, yes, in the future, we should have a, a dedicated session we can address these topics um, with a greater time to consider them uh, and more broadly greater nuance because these are nuanced topics and, and notwithstanding uh, Marley's remarks even that amount of time is nowhere near sufficient to address something so complex. Okay, I agree. So I agree. So I, I think that we should let Marley have wanted the chance to respond and I think we should leave it at that. We will definitely come back to this topic. It, it's something I think about quite a bit. Just I just gave a, I gave a Gemara Shear about uh, you know the idea of of we, the, we're in the fourth chapter, uh, fourth parak of Sukkah, and we're talking about the idea of should you wave the lulav in, you know, on the first day, is it Doche Shabbat or not Doche Shabbat? And it turns out that, what do you know, it, like, you know, it's pretty clear that the Minhag Eretz Yisrael up until the Middle Ages was that they did take a lulav on Shabbat, and so now the issue comes up, well, should we reinvigorate? Should we reestablish the Minhag? You know, the, so these, these issues are not just gender issues, they're issues that are much more wide-ranging in many, many areas of halakha. Of like, you know, if, if a minhag changed, should we change it back? Is there such a thing as original minhag in, in Eretz Yisrael when you haven't had a community in Eretz Yisrael for literally centuries? So I, I want to come back to this, but Molly wanted the chance to respond. So I sort of want to, you know, I want to, to shift gears. Because it's Eretz Purim, I, uh, we felt it was appropriate to spend a little bit of time talking about a very popular issue that, that's related to the idea of drinking on Purim. Um, Johnny, would you mind, I, I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm sure it's very easy for you. Would you mind giving a very brief, a very brief uh, uh, overview of the halachot, the simple halacha about drinking on Purim? Um, okay. Uh, there's a mitz, there are four mitzvot on Purim. One includes a mitzvah of having a su'uda. And with reference to that, Gemara uh, states, um, that to translate, the way it's translated is, a person, or as many emphasize a man, is obligated to become intoxicated on Purim to the extent to which they cannot uh, individuate between um, blessed is uh, uh, Mordechai and cursed is Haman. That's how it's phrased in the Gemara, and, and that's how it's codified in the Shulchan Aruch. But it really, it's not about the codification, about the discussion surrounding that and the application of that, which um, has led to considerable discussion, uh, because uh, the Ramah famously makes it clear that to have just a little bit more wine, and that's important to note that almost all poskim emphasize that drinking here is a wine drink rather than any spirit drink. Uh, and but you said that. Why do you say this? In the Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't say that. It says you need to be intoxicated, be b'sume. Is that only because the language of b'sume is about wine? I, I think not just that line in Shulchan Aruch, um, but uh, you, you asked me to put, to put me on the spot. I'm sorry, I didn't want to put you on the spot. Certainly, that's, okay. that's, that's the understood meaning of the Gemara. That's, that's certainly a notion brought down by, by numerous Paiskim. Uh, I'm very, very happy to put Mary McComas on our Facebook page afterwards, but Undoubtedly, many poskim do wish to emphasize that the uh, the ikar is imyayim. Uh, the ikar is with wine, if you if you if you want want to call it the chiyuv. Um, but as I was saying beforehand, there are more talk about drinking a little bit more and going to sleep, and, and in so doing, there's a kiyum of adalayada. Um, and, uh, and what many people wish to do is emphasize there's a vast difference between drinking to a point of being hazy in being able to distinguish certain theological constructs and being drunk. Um, and 
that's generally how yeah, I want to clarify. Mr. Burr what what, kind of, and what most kind of levels are we talking about? Let's talk about what kind of level are we talking about? Because uh, it's important for the discussion. Because in the Shulchan Aruch, you say the language is You have to be so drunk that you can't distinguish between blesses Mordechai and curses Haman. That is falling on your face drunk. Can we agree about that? That's a good, good, uh, good. Uh, that's an accurate description of, of the level of drunkenness you'd have to do to be able to not make that distinction. Nope, we can't. We can't agree on that for, for a whole variety of reasons. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> meaning, again, I mean, that's there's one level. The Ramah says you should be drink enough that you should that you should be tired and fall asleep. Drink more than you usually do. So that's another level of drunkenness. Some level of drunkenness. Correct. If it's, uh, Ruby, can I just interject because I. Sure. This is not a purely halachic uh, um, answer, but what it reflects is that it's not so clear that there's one way to understand, you know, the the, the you know the, the inability to distinguish. Um, I don't remember who this is from. My daughter just quoted this to me, where she some Hasidic Rebbe who said, "Well, what it means is that on the outside you can't distinguish between Avraham and." Uh, and Baruch Mordechai, right? You're like, you're no, free to... I'm, 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 I'm Wait, one second, one second, one second, one second. I want to say this is important. But inside, in your Panemius, it's very clear to you who Haman is and who Mordechai is, and you're still in a state where um, where you're able to um, to convey that to the world, where you're, where, you're, where you're able to convey this spiritual difference between Haman and, and Mordechai. So um, first of all, I like, I think it's a nice word. But why am I? I don't understand it. I don't know what it means. What, what it means what is it that means you're not falling on your face drunk. It means that the way at least this Rebbe understood it was like you. What you do is you like tear off the external garments and uh, your own external garments enough so that you're comfortable letting your inner light shine through. But you need to be a person oh. who kind of you know that inner light is very clear about what is good and wait, what. wait. How do you tear off that external garment by through the drinking? Literally. By drinking, no, okay. Drinking. Maybe I'm like that, that's fine. I like I'm trying to, to 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 sort of set the parameters of the discussion because. Right, but my point is that when you inter- say, no, "Oh, it's so interpretation obvious the, that the halacha no, no, is X, What's the simple interpretation of the meaning? What's the simple interpretation of the meaning of the Shulchan Aruch? And then there's the Ramah. I just want to know what the simple interpretation is. If a person wanted to learn Shulchan Aruch and you know see what the what the what the what the Gemara says, did I did I misinterpret it? Well, clearly, different people okay. are going to read it. Just want to make it clear: when you say a person, um, uh, not that life is quite always so simple, but if you're talking about an Ashkenazi person to to uh, divorce the Ramah from the Shulchan Aruch, um, not divorce the Ramah at all. I'm asking you. I'm asking you as a Sephardic person. What 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 is the what is the <laughs> saying? Yeah, I'm a Sephardic person who barely drinks, so I I have one drink on Purim. Well, didn't we do we, Didn't we not just talk about the idea of submission? Meaning submission isn't just where you you know where, where, where you don't like it on one side; it's submission on the other side also. I want it reminds Correct, me of a conversation I, I, I had with some. I also pondered Adreyada in a in a slightly different way. To quote of Chaim Friedlander, I mean the Adreyada and Arahan and Baruch Mordechai in this case is until you cannot mm-hmm. distinguish whether it was the uh, removal of Hashverosh's ring which led to uh, the fear fact amongst Am Yisrael, which Chazal say. Had a greater impact than a than a memchet neviim, than necessarily the positive contribution of Mordechai. Meaning, you're reading it as if you got to be so drunk that when you're so slurred, I say Mordechai was he the baddie? Um, I think that's a very arbitrary uh, definition. By the way, if you really want to nitpick, the Shulchan Aruch is generally quite clear in language. And if it wants to say until you're drunk in your face, it could have said it in fewer words. No, that's not fair so, because he's just quoting the Gemara. It's just quoting the Gemara straight. Correct. So no, but it could have clarified it. I think that's actually interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not disputing the, the notion I'm, I'm, of intoxication. We're not even getting to the argument part yet. I, guess, I, I would. No, I would no, like no, to no, what we're further. arguing with you is that you're saying the Gemara, the halacha is so clear, and what and I think what Johnny is saying from a more halachic perspective, when I'm saying, well, whatever, I, I don't want to wade into it because I feel like my expertise, but I'm suggesting that perhaps. The fact that different postgim take it in different directions reflects something about how it's not as clear as you want to read it. Um, okay, because I think that the, the simple interpretation would make anyone uncomfortable. Meaning, you know, it's uncomfortable to think that a person would have to be so drunk that he that he simply cannot distinguish between two obvious things. And uh, 
and when you're drunk, you don't lose the ability to, to I would say, to comprehend the difference between good and evil. You know who's good and who's, who's evil. It's like it's a little bit. It's a little bit of a strange formulation. But what's interesting about it is that, and the reason it's such an important topic is because of exactly I think this issue. The here we have a halacha that simply makes many people, and especially in the modern community, uncomfortable. It just makes them uncomfortable. They, it doesn't sit well with them. And and for and each year, what comes up is you always see it. And if you haven't seen it yet, you're going to see it again. And I think we just, you know, Molly, you shared it with us in, uh, on, on Facebook, uh, a blog post by Rabbi Larry Wathrax, who I respect very, very much, about why he stopped drinking. Okay? And, he, and he wrote, as a father... And as a rabbi, and he said he drank for many, he drank on Purim for many years. As a father, as a rabbi, and as a teacher, I find it more challenging to effectively promote intolerance towards excessive alcohol consumption through the year, while simultaneously tolerating such indulgences on Purim. For many, particularly among our youth, the perceived disparity between these two messages is both glaring and compelling. So, how do you teach self-control and promote intolerance for drugs and alcohol, and then say to kids, "No, but you can," and there's a mitzvah to drink on Purim. These are really good questions. These are very good questions. And and so my the, the this isn't intended, it was never intended to be uh, necessarily a halakha discussion, which is always interesting to me. And I find it really interesting that, you know, immediately, even before we even discuss, like you're not even willing to acknowledge that perhaps the Shukhanarach means what I think it says it means. That's really interesting to me. And you're right away go, you know, run through Hasidic interpretations. Like start with the start with the facts. But because it makes us uncomfortable. And what happens when we have halacha, you know, like we're always willing to acknowledge on the other side, you know, we need more, more halacha that has to be more liberal when it comes to allowing women or whatever the topic is, you know, Israel or whatever it is. But all of a sudden when the halacha is more demanding and it seems relatively clear, you have to drink something, well, I'm not comfortable with it. And so therefore I'm going to find a shita that makes me comfortable and I'm going to keep that shita. You know, I'm not sure, like, you know, like, it, it doesn't say, even if, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, I follow the Ramah. And the Ramah says, okay, you don't have to get that drunk. Okay, you, you should drink more than you're used to, more, and then you should go to sleep. And it doesn't mean you should have a sip of wine, and then you should then take a nap. That's not what it means. It means you should drink enough that it makes you tired and drowsy. And that's a significant amount as well. It's not one cup of wine. So uh, all I'm saying is... Okay, so, so yeah. let, let, let me I'm just... I'm not saying anything yet, Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, I thought we were, we were planning to talk about kind of the sociology of drinking, but I'm, I'm more than happy to revisit the things that we said beforehand and, and crystallize them further. To, to respond, number one, uh, I don't dispute the, the literal meaning of the halacha in the Gemara Shulchanach. Nonetheless, I think the word of Sumay uh, needs to be understood, and I mentioned of Chaim Friedlander on the same daf the Gemara Megillah. Ripsume means the sense of metikut, and I think there's a, a theology which he describes then. So to to interpret it exclusively as being drunk out of your face, I think is uh, is uh, an overstretch. Number two, I mentioned the Chavitz Chaim here. I have in my hand the Bir Alocha who says. Uh, and it's important to note, by the way, that Din is in the halachas of Din Sudas Purim. So uh, I'm more than happy to acknowledge we're talking about uh, intoxication, but I'm also insistent that if we talk about it, it's within the context of a Suda. You know, drinking outside the framework of a Suda has no uh, permission granted to it by the Shulchanach in the slightest, but goes on to be a halacha to say, So if drinking leads a person to be mafchitatzmo, to reduce himself, to lower themselves from simcha, right? Because he says, So naturally this depends on one person to another. As I say, I don't really drink. So if for me having one drink uh, leads me to that, then matter if I've reached that level, if other people are more used to a high capacity of drinking, then perhaps a little bit more. You asked about Yain, the Chai Odom, notes that in respect to Yain. So, yes, there is a din, yes, there are different ways to read the Gemara, not to necessarily undermine its literal meaning, but the Psume itself is somewhat an ambiguous term, and it means something else, even the same daf of the Gemara. It's a din of Suda, it's, it's understood to be reference to wine, 
And most Paiskim say, which is not drunkenness, this intoxication to lead to a certain level of simcha shel mitzvah, which we, means you're not losing sight of uh, of your behavior. It doesn't lead you to shtus. That's okay. the key ikka. I, I agree with that. I was, it's interesting. I was in, talking in my uh, in my carpool this morning. We were going, what were we going to talk about? We were talking about drinking on Purim. So the person that I that I I, I ride with, she said to me, oh, I, I can't stand it. It's terrible. I said, why? She said, we did that in college, and it was disgusting then, and it's disgusting now. And I think that uh, that it's it's a really interesting phenomenon that, yes, that people make an association between drinking on Purim and, and wild, raucous, I don't know, like partying in college, which I never participated in, and and that association of 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 being drunk and having uh, joy in that way, or you know, partying in that way, they they that association makes them automatically assume that that's the only way a person can be drunk, and therefore being drunk is inherently inappropriate. And I have a, you know I, I have a story to tell, but I have a, I have a, I have I have, I have a problem with that. Because in my experience, like, you know, especially when I, when I went to yeshiva, I was never drunk until I went to yeshiva in Israel. And I, I, in my experience, like, drunkenness, it, yes, it brings out more of you. That's definitely true. But if you're in an environment with people who are, who are spiritual people and religious people, then drinking has the capacity and the potential to create a, a, a you know, an enhanced, beautiful spiritual experience. It really does. And the assumption that, you know, yes, if you do it in a, in a if you're drinking in an environment of licentiousness and inappropriateness, it'll only lead to more of that. But if you if you're drinking in an environment of of holiness and appropriateness, it will lead to more of that too. And in a, in a way that you could never experience and you could never have without without the without the the, the additional, I would say, assistance that the alcohol can provide. And that association, I think, it, I think makes people refuse to uh, like acknowledge the possibility that there is such a thing as holy drinking, okay, that there so is I, such a thing as appropriate drunkenness. I want to respond to that because it, it, the truth is I've been thinking about this for many years. And I think for many years I, I took the line that you took, which was... Um, because I, because I do agree with you, because I have seen um, the type of drinking that you are describing, right, um, and I, I will talk about that more in a minute, where, where really what it does is enables people to get more in touch with their spiritual side and to, to use, to use the, the, the intoxication, and I'll talk about levels of intoxication in a second also, to help them um, really celebrate in a more spiritual way. Um, I did say, like, yeah, that's because you guys, you know, you only associate drinking with, like, you know, being plastered, but that's not when drinking on Purim is. Um, but I think it's more complex than that. Uh, that's what I'm starting to realize. Meaning that chiluk, like, that, that distinction is too simplistic. Like, what you're saying is, oh, you know, that's like a modern sensibility that drinking is just this disgusting thing, but that really drinking um, can lead us to a lot of spirituality. And I would say it's more complex. I would say, yes. There's the modern getting plastered that's disgusting, and that's clearly not what Purim's about. But I would now, I'm starting with the years to realize that even among people who are who think that their intention is to um, use the drinking for spiritual purposes, or even if they're like good, well-meaning people, or they're in a yeshiva, or they're in a, you know, a firm environment, many people cannot do that. And I think that there are two reasons. One is they drink too much. There's a difference between getting slightly inebriated, a little tipsy until, um, you know, again, like inhibitions fall away and you can really get in touch with spirituality. And I also wonder if it has to do with different personalities. Um, you know, what a person's spiritual makeup is, what their focus is on during the year, um, what type of, again, I, I think they're like, I've seen people who like are, are very good people um, and actually very serious people and even rabbinic figures. And then I saw them get drunk on Purim and I was like, that really was not appropriate and not a positive experience for me. And again, was it because they drank too much or was it because certain aspects of their personality came out 
that I don't want to have to see aggressive sides, um, inappropriate sides. And, and so like, it's not quite as black and white as you're making it. So I would say like this, I would say, are there people- uh, I agree it's not black and white, but that's exactly my point. No, but I'm saying it's, it's not, not just about modern sensibilities. It's not just about, oh, because they're, they're, they're just frat boys and all the from people, they know, you know, all the spiritual ruchin people, they know. I never said all the from people and I don't imagine for a second that the from people. Okay, but so, but I, that's, I think it's an important point to make, which is how much you're gonna drink and what's gonna come out. And I, 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 I am seeing with time that the peop, that the amount, the people that I've seen who are able to drink to the degree that they're that they're that they're drunk, right? They're somewhere between tipsy and drunk, and what comes out is something that doesn't make me uncomfortable to be around. It exists. There are people. There 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 are people like that. I've seen them, and I I I, I enjoy spending Purim with them. But the proportion of those people to the other people is probably like, you know, I I, I don't know what what the numbers would be. One in ten, maybe, maybe even less. You know, and, and that's just the reality that I'm seeing around me. So do with that what you will. But like, you know, that's what I see. So. Mm. Rav Johnny, Rav Johnny, what do you think? Well, I, I think the people who make remarks about drunkenness on Purim aren't making it because when they were at a Suda, somebody drunk a lot and was tipsy and fell asleep on the sofa. I, I Unfortunately, or, or this is a reality, you know, Sudas end and people leave homes drunk and sometimes they walk home, often they drive home. Uh, wait, let, let's, are... wait, wait a second, let's put that off the table. Obviously, Why? we take it for granted that... that Correct, if, but if, the point is... It has to be taken for granted. The drunken behavior isn't localized to... No, I'm saying about driving or doing dangerous soda. behavior. That's all I take it. I'm saying that it goes without saying that, that, you know, if you can't take a precaution to make sure that you're not going to drive home drunk, you should not drink ever, ever, ever. Okay, okay, so I'm saying to you the following. Naniach, uh, that uh, in the ideal situation, people only drank at Suda. People drank to inebriation, but not to complete drunkenness, like I alluded to from the Bir Halacha. Uh, people certainly didn't drive home drunk, please God, that they should certainly not do so. That alcohol wouldn't be a gateway drug, what it is, and that we didn't have this prevalence of Kiddush clubs. I'd agree with you. Let's keep... The, the halacha as is, uh, and be as loyal to it as everything else. But uh, like Mali was saying, there's a context. The context is people leave uh, suddas and behave improperly in the street, both here in Israel and in Chutz Haaretz, because they're inebriated, undrunk, and people see that, and it's shocking. People do drive, and of course we're not endorsing that in the slightest, <clears throat> but that's a simple reality. Alcohol is a gateway drug, um, <clears throat> And we have this prevalence of Kiddush clubs, and I don't know if you saw that very powerful video made by Amudim about Kiddush clubs, but what we have here isn't just a problem on Purim. We have a problem of, of excess in general within Judaism, and certainly within uh, 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 affluent Jews in the diaspora and also here, where alcohol consumption is uh, far too high on, on a Shabbos, on a Yontif, and Purim's taken to the next level. So if we could be a little bit more measured in respect to the rest of the year, and much more focused on appropriate behavior on Purim, fine. But the reason why people speak about drunken Jews on Purim isn't because they, you know, cousin Shloimi had a little bit too much to drink, you know, in between the meatballs. I, I, that's not, I, I want to push back. That's not why people this. speak about I, I understand what you're saying, and I really do. But I sometimes feel like we... We live in a society or a religious society that that it has to be all or nothing. Meaning, you know, by the way, we all know in the non-Jewish world it's acceptable to drink. You know, there's a very famous like Jackie Mason uh, comedy routine. Have you ever saw it? You can look it up on YouTube. Where he says the difference between Jews and goyim is like after the show, all the goyim are gonna, all the Jews are gonna be like, did you eat? Did you eat? And all the goyim are gonna be like, you have a drink? You know, you know what I'm saying? So it's not in it is not in our culture really at all to drink, even though you know sacramental wine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's, there seems to be just a credible level of, of intolerance, almost to the point of prohibition when it, comes to, when it comes to alcohol consumption. And part of me wonders that, you know, is, like, is, is this is the reaction, when you say to a child, you can know never, never do it, never do it, then all of a sudden, like, you know, there, there is no education for 
for reasonable consumption. There is no, how do you teach someone this is an acceptable level and this is not? And maybe you could say, I don't know. I really, I'm not a social worker. Molly's going to like yell at me now. Maybe, maybe there is no such thing. But these things exist out there, you know, and they're going to start drinking. So are we teaching them? Maybe, Molly, maybe the, the yeshiva, instead of giving them, you know, drinking, they have to teach them and they have to limit them and they have to teach them this is enough and that, you know, somebody should be watching them. But yes, there is an idea of tipsiness. There is an idea of appropriateness and there is an idea of learning how to, how to, how to find the appropriate level without going beyond. Because it's not all or nothing. And they say that, by the way, part of the problem in, in colleges and universities isn't the drinking, it's binge drinking. It's over drinking. And then they say all the kids hate doing it, but they all do it because all their friends do it. You know, and nobody bothered to tell them, well, you know, you can enjoy, you can relax, and you can let go a little bit, you know. And, and maybe a kiddush club, I don't think during davening is such a terrible thing, but a l'chaim and a kiddush is not a terrible thing. But you shouldn't have five, and you shouldn't go to five houses. But, yeah, but you know, yeah. we people are so tight, and they're so, no, you can't do anything, that if a person wants to enjoy a drink, oh, my God, it's a gateway drug. And maybe that's why it's a gateway drug. Okay, because so that, one I, is not... I want to so, go ahead. a little bit on what you Sociology me. Okay. Sociology. Well, before sociology, I'll say the following. Well, okay, I guess this is sociology, but it's not social. I think that the the um, the reaction in, certain, in in recent years to be less tolerant is not is is Zdafka not coming from a place of prohibitionism, right? Which therefore is gonna is leading to more alcohol con- consumption. My impression is that it's the other way. It's because society has, as as Rajani described, because there are really are serious problems with alcohol consumption. Um, about, it's, it's coming into our community, perhaps in ways that it didn't before. I know, I know that Jackie Mason routine, coffee and cake, coffee and cake, have a drink, have a drink, right? That doesn't <laughs> be the reality anymore. It seems to be that there's really, um, within the Orthodox community, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I, that's, I had a show. Okay, again, there was a kiddish club, but it wasn't. There certainly wasn't a majority of the show. And okay, it so I don't know. Listen, I, don't I know. haven't lived in America for since nineteen, you know, nineteen ninety three. So I don't really. I can't speak from firsthand experience. I'm only speaking from you know what I've read and what I've seen, and a little bit again what I what I hear from my students. Um, but you hear stuff. You hear that there that that like things are, and the world is becoming a more black and white place. Ruby, it is becoming the idea a nuance is. But we're, that's our job. Our job is to okay, fight wait. against that. Okay, our job is to okay. say it's so not black first and white. Point, it's not... I agree. So my first point, though, is to recognize that this reactionary no is not it's not really a prohibitionary no that's causing the excessive drinking. It's there's a new challenge on the horizon. Uh, you know, or there's maybe there's recognition of a challenge that always was that there is really a problem here. We have to solve it. Now, I do agree with you. Like it, I would much prefer. Like I think it's a, it's an important question among the let's say yeshivas. Like how should they relate to drinking? Um, should there be zero tolerance, or should there be like everybody gets, you know, to drink a little and you educate them? But unfortunately, what's happening in a lot of yeshivas is not that the the the, the yeshivas are often encouraging excessive drinking and i know that and that is i I don't think that's appropriate like we can have a conversation which is a more proper approach a let's teach you how to drink in moderation and i model that as the rebbe and i also drink in moderation and only get slightly tipsy and then you only get slightly tipsy and then you're not going to go to the next rebbe's house and do the same thing and then the next rebbe's house and do the same thing and the next rebbe's house do the same thing and then throw up and and pass out in in the middle of the street um or do we have a zero tolerance policy because we think that's right so those would be my two options, right? My, uh, teaching them really moderation or nothing. But what's happening today is that we are letting, we are, my impression is that we are not, do, we are not educating that way. We are saying, woohoo, it's Purim. Let's get drunk and let's all be spiritual without doing either one of those two better options, which is let's see if we can get, be spiritual with, the, with no alcohol or like Rav Johnny's, you know, one minor drink. But let's see if we can teach how to drink until you're tipsy but then we're all going to stop and that's going to be supervised. But that's not the reality. If we could create that reality, so fa- fabulous. That would be terrific. I just think just that, a, that, that we, we live in such a world where we demand so much tightness and so much control that, that we don't give an opportunity for release. And without giving that opportunity for release, the release will come, but it won't come on Purim. And I think that people are not... Uh, we're not cognizant of that. And then we wonder, you know, why the release, when the release happens, we wonder, oh, what happened? You, you, know, you never gave an avenue for release. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think about the yeshiva bachrim. But I think it's so easy to sit around and learn yeshiva all day. It's really hard. It demands an incredible amount of self-control. And it demands an incredible amount of, you know what I'm saying? So maybe there are those very, very few people who just, who, are, who have that level of control that they're always, you know, yucky in every aspect of their life and never really need to, to let go. But that's not the human condition, I don't think. And, and I think Chazal understood that. I really believe they understood that. You know what I'm saying? Like we, 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 we read the news. We, you know, we, how do we start this podcast? There's so much pain in the world today. And there's never any escape from it. You know, okay, you just so, but pick Ruby, up the news. The lease doesn't have to be alcohol. Can we? Can I didn't, wait, wait, wait. Don't... I didn't say always. Use the word always. Okay. But you, I'm you're... saying, you're saying Yeshiva Bachrim are, you know, like it's the Chorif Man Blues. Okay. So you need a Rosh Chodesh Mesiba and you need to have a baseball game and you need to maybe even bring someone in and I will teach them how to meditate. Do you know what I'm saying? There are many ways. Well, why? I understand there are many ways. Your way is meditation. Not no, but because why? Because alcohol is not the same as a basketball game or a chagiga. It's not. I, so, do you know that? That's true. Yes, it is not. Of, of course, it's not. I just want to cut in. Go ahead. Um, I mentioned before <laughs> that I don't. I don't drink. I think the issue is, and, and perhaps it's a new phenomenon. Maybe it's not. That when on, on a Shabbos, people offer me a lechaim, uh, and I'll generally say uh, no, thank you. People presume that I must be a former alcoholic <laughs> and I have a problem. Meaning refusing drink in a very decent way um, is seen to be something totally improper, certainly for somebody who is perceived by some as a rov um, or, or, or you know involved in Torah. It seems to be that if you really want to be accepted in the world of you know Orthodox Jewish living, especially within a synagogue community, then you need to come to Davin, you have to learn and you have to drink. And I think that's ridiculous. I mean, as I said to you before, if we were just talking about Purim, just talking about the Suda, and specifically talking about wine, matoy, fine. But we have an issue in the community where it's considered to be part and parcel of the Orthodox lifestyle that you drink more than one on a regular basis. And and again, and if you you know gently refuse, it's perceived as if. Uh, somehow here Houston we have a problem it shouldn't be the expectation that orthodox Jewish living is accompanied by orthodox Jewish drinking except of course on Shabbat when you drink wine twice. I drink grape juice what? yeah but they didn't grape have grape juice, juice and they never drank grape juice that's a modern innovation I know it came from prohibition yeah, I'm, I'm well aware <laughs> but that, it's not an expectation of orthodoxy uh, well, when I you think... grew up in Shul Johnny, when you grew up in Shul and somebody had a yard site Right? Well, they, they of know. course, I'm well aware. I'm well aware. My, trust me. Did my we think, oh, this is so terrible that a... my Zeta had a lechayim in the morning with a piece of herring? You know what I'm saying? Right? And, and, and many people I know, my family included, uh, enjoy a nice lechayim. What I'm simply saying is, I've got no problems with somebody who drinks and who knows when to stop after one uh, and knows how to control themselves. Nonetheless, I, the fact that this is an expectation of lifestyle rather than necessarily something that some people choose to do. Um, and then people to take it to the nth degree on Purim. This is why I am, I will not say somewhat concerned. I'm concerned with obviously the outcomes which lead from this drinking. People who drink responsibly, let them enjoy it. That's, that's fantastic for them. It's not my thing. Um, and each their own. So I want to go back to a comment Rabbi, Rabbi Rathax wrote. He said, our commitment to teaching values of self-control and our efforts to promote intolerance for drugs and alcohol are not merely obstructed by this apparent behavioral contradiction. They are entirely compromised. And I want to say I totally, I respect him, I love him, I totally disagree. I think that, that it cannot be all or nothing. You have to teach people that, and I agree with you, it's not always, and you don't have to, I totally agree with the statement, it can't be an expectation of orthodoxy, but I can't, I don't think you can say it's all or nothing. I think you have to be able to say there is a time and a place, and that I, I you determine what the time thing. and place is, but but to say that if you get drunk on Purim, therefore you're all of a sudden saying that you know you we compromise our intolerance for drug abuse, I, I disagree with that. Okay, but I, I want to say something might, else. I feel it might even be it might it might even be detrimental to it. That's okay. what I feel. I, I think that there's truth in what you're saying, but I I do think that it's kind of coming back to what we said in the beginning. I think that there are different people. Different people drink in different ways. There are people who drink in in what I would call, let's say, a mature, measured, responsible way. Where like 
you know, like what you were describing, you drink on a Friday night, you, you know, you, you have your alcohol and maybe you have a little extra one before you go to sleep and you enjoy your wine and, you know, and that's fine. And you only drink at certain times and you have a mature approach to alcohol. And then there's an approach to alcohol, which is an immature approach to alcohol, a frat boy approach to alcohol, where alcohol is really like a woohoo, let's, you know, it is much more similar to like um, all types of other substances where it's like, this is a little bit forbidden and it, a little bit makes me into a bad boy. And like, I, you know, like I'm, I, I like, I'm a little cool because I do this. And that, I think that unfortunately, that distinction between those two approaches to alcohol is the problem because what you're arguing is what, what has happened to approach A? And I think what, what, I think what happened to approach A is, I, no. think, I totally agree with you. I think you're just making my point. That's exactly right. No, what I'm saying is what teach, happened to approach have, A is that too many and people and say, have lost approach be, A. Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? I don't know if they I got it from that. the secular world. I don't know if they got it because they're immature. I don't know if they got it because, as you said, for buying Gunuvim Yun Taku and, you know, it was forbidden to them all their lives. And again, now they're adults and now they want to be cool. So now they want to drink, you know, like there could be that phenomenon as well. But for unfortunately, again, like the same the same drink or the same evening can be appropriate or inappropriate. And the difference is going to be the attitude towards it and therefore the amount and therefore the restraint. And I, I and again, like you're, you're right about it. I, as is the same with every living aspect in, There are of too life. many people for whom alcohol is immediately associated with approach B. Halavai that it wasn't. Halavai, we were all, you know, a bunch of like, you know, extremely mature, extremely thoughtful. Um, I, I don't think you're fair to say halavai. I think as, as, as I think it's fair for me to say, I've seen too much of approach B. I've seen too much of approach B. First of all, first of all, I think for Rabbi's going to say that I'm not going to drink. That's absolutely is right. But people are going to drink, and people drink a lot on Purim. And it's much more responsible to say we should learn to teach our children and our communities to drink in moderation because maybe they'll listen. Than to say, oh, it's so. I agree. Let's teach them approach A. I agree with you. Of course, that's what we should be doing. Let's teach them approach A. But I'm so. When have you? But when have you seen a call before Purim? Learn. Let's teach our children to drink right, not not to drink at all. When have you seen that? Okay, so then that's something that our educational... First of all, there are educational institutions that do that, but... I'm calling for that. I'm calling for it. Okay. Okay, that's my call. Johnny, do you want to end it? We're almost out. We're we're over time. So do you want to add something before we finish? No, I... I, Listen, I agree with you. I agree in educating uh, to moderation. I know in the seminaries where I teach, girls go to to, uh, teachers' homes and they're allowed... Uh, one small drink of, of uh, something, um, and there is uh, significant supervision. Um, uh, I think Yeshiva Bochrim have a whole different framework, which is, I think, often very, very regrettable. Nonetheless, this is the Gemara, this is the, the Halach and Shulchan Aruch. Uh, I do find often people are very, very machmir with this Halacha <laughs> and sometimes seem to be less machmir than others. Um, which is itself telling, uh, and 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 if some reason or another I have, uh, I'm I'm leaning towards the the uh, shit of the of the Ramah and others, and so be it. I guess everyone to their own uh, physiology, and nonetheless, we we do need to consider how we're perceived by ourselves, by our families, by our communities. Yes, we should educate responsibly, but um, we we do the more we understand about alcoholism, the more care we need to show towards this being something that can lead people to 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 this and other uh, other behaviors okay thank you very much i want to we'll wrap it up here i'm sure um we'll get angry i'll get angry mail emails uh, well i'm quite confident about that um if you want to contact us people have been able to find us on email uh, or uh, each of us is on facebook you can find us on facebook we're pretty easy to find um please if you don't mind, if you're listening on iTunes, rate us on iTunes because we that, that way people will find us. And if, if you enjoy this podcast, or even if you don't, share it with other people uh, because we want to spread the word and we'd love uh, more people to, uh, to uh, share and uh, respond and to enjoy the discussions that we enjoy having. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Molly Borowski and Johnny Solomon. I also want to thank my son, Petachia Spolter, for writing our music. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a Purim Sunday.